The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 11, 17-34. The word of God speaks to us. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I command you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. This is God's word to us. Amen. Hey, guys, good morning. It's, uh, it's good to see everybody. If we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. If you've got a Bible, you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be in verses 17 through 34. Um, this is a really important text for us as a church, because when we gather on the Lord's Day, we want to be a church that's both liturgical and charismatic. We want to be formed by biblical rhythms of worship and prayer and confession, the preaching of God's word, and having all that we do on Sunday morning culminate at the Lord's Supper. And we want to do so with the expectation that Jesus is here, that the spirit of God is moving, that life is in the room because God's present. So I'm going to pray for you and ask you to pray for me, and we're going to dive in and walk through this chapter. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your presence and for your power and for your faithfulness. 
And I pray today as we open your word that you would speak to us, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would shape us and form us. And uh, Father, I pray that we would see the glory of reconciliation in the gospel, that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we've been reconciled to the Father and to one another. And I pray today where relationships are fractured, where we're creating meaning and building stories that aren't true, that today would be a day where we repent and we forgive and we love each other. We ask today that you would help us and meet us and feed our souls today. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Hey, so Easter Sunday this year is our 18th birthday as a church. That's pretty crazy, man. 18 years of worshiping Jesus in Oklahoma City. Yeah, that's a big deal. It's... It's amazing and it's a testimony to God's grace that we still exist. Uh, We have seen God do amazing things on Sunday mornings. And we have seen things that were completely weird on Sunday mornings. Uh, There's a whole chapter of the history of our church that we could just call weird things that drummers have done. Uh, Drew excluded. But I I was remembering today, back in the day, early Frontline, we spent four weeks gathering in our home before we had a building, and there were just too many kids. Kids were falling out of the trees in my backyard. They were hiding pizzas in my kids' closets. So we found a building that we could afford, which was a crack shack building on 23rd Street with mystery stains on the carpet. And we needed a a drummer for our worship band, and there was a member of the church that was really into metal, and he was like, I will drum for you guys. And we're like, awesome, dude. You're going to drum for us. This will be great. Well, we show up on Sunday morning and the building that we were meeting in was like a glorified hallway. It was tiny. And we only had about 60 people. And this dude showed up with a drum kit that would absolutely heap shame on the head of Lars from Metallica. Um, this This drum kit had more symbols than we had people in the church. He had a double bass. He showed up in a headband and just rocked out for Jesus. <laughs> Babies were crying. People's eardrums were bursting. And after the service, I'm trying to be diplomatic. And I walk up to this guy and I'm like, hey, man, man, thanks for playing. Thanks for worshiping Jesus. I can tell you really love the Lord and you love music. Um, do you think maybe you could either like lighten up on how you hit the cymbals or, or maybe switch to brushes? And he was like, hey, let me tell you something. When you're older, you'll understand how important it is to rock for Jesus. <laughs> And and that was the last Sunday that we had a drummer for a really long time. We we finally got another drummer, and that's when we moved into Broadway. And uh, things were really popping. We were seeing God save people. Uh, we, we had four services on Sunday morning, and it was really fun to just see punk rockers and people in the music scene and a lot of folks in the homeless community meeting Jesus. And to get into church on Sunday morning, you had to run the gauntlet of, like, bikers and indie rockers on the front steps smoking cigarettes. And I remember, I remember it was towards the end of our time of worship and singing, and the guy that was playing drums took off his hoodie, and on his t-shirt in eight-inch block letters was the F word. Just the F word with no context. And I remember thinking, well, I guess this brother is trying to celebrate Christian liberty, uh, but I'm going to get a lot of emails. So... 
I had another diplomatic conversation with this guy, and he proceeded to lead the next three services with his T-shirt inside out. Uh, I, I remember a Sunday morning where two guys stood up in the middle of the sermon and started screaming at each other. And these guys look like roadies for uh, ZZ Top, like huge beards. I guarantee at least one of the guys' name was like Hawkblade or something like that. And, and these dudes are screaming at each other in the middle of the service. They're about to come to blows. And I just stopped preaching. I'm like, guys, what is going on? And this dude goes, well, this guy stole my cigarettes. <laughs> and I was like, hey, man, if you don't fight on Sunday morning, I will buy you a carton of cigarettes. Just sit down. I remember, I remember in this building, some of you guys got to experience the, uh, the horror of Biblegate where the guy just started dropping obscenities left and right, came to the edge of the balcony and threw a pew Bible at me. And pew Bibles are dangerous. They have sharp edges. Right In 18 years, we've seen weird things happen. We've seen prophetic words that missed it. We've seen outbursts. We've seen all kinds of crazy stuff. We've had people try to get drunk on communion wine. We had a dude steal nine Bibles on a Sunday morning. But here's what's wild. In 18 years, I've never had a Sunday where I thought, hey, it would be better if we just stayed home. Like that was so out of order. That was so messed up. That was so out of step with the gospel. I wish that we just stayed home. But there's something happening in Corinth as they gather on the Lord's day and as they receive the bread and the wine of the Lord's supper, there's something that the Corinthians are doing that's so out of step with the gospel. It's so incongruent with the grace of God in Jesus that that's exactly what Paul says. When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. So what could possibly be happening in Corinth on Sunday morning that was so out of step with the gospel that Paul tells them it would be better if you just stay home? Look at verses 18 and 19. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. Okay, in the last chapters of this book, we've seen all kinds of divisions in Corinth. There were leadership divisions and factions in the church. There were theological and doctrinal divisions in the church. There were even lawsuits among Christians. But what's happening in this particular moment is the division between the rich and the poor that's so offensive to Paul. It's so out of step with the poverty of Jesus and the essence of God's grace that they're missing the gospel altogether. Look at what happens starting in verse 20. For when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those that have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. In the early church, it was a common practice on the Lord's Day to share a meal. Christians would eat together on the Lord's Day. And the culmination of that meal together would be the Lord's Supper, where they would take bread and they would take wine to remember and honor the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we don't know exactly what was taking place and how the rich were despising the church and dishonoring the poor, but there's a few strong possibilities. Let me name them for you. 
Sunday in, current, in Corinth was a work day for most Christians, for most Christians. And some commentators believe that because wealthier Christians had more flexibility in their schedule, that they would show up on the Lord's day before the poor working class Christians showed up and they would basically tailgate. They would pregame. So the poor Christians would show up on Sunday morning and the wealthy Christians had been there for hours eating food and drinking wine. And so the poor people show up and there's nothing left but crumbs and the rich Christians are drunk and they've already unbuttoned their top button. They're sitting back full and drunk while the poor Christians have the leftovers. Another possibility is that everybody just brought their own meal like potluck on the Lord's Day. And it's possible that the wealthy Christians were bringing whatever the first century equivalent of filet mignon was. Like they had an amazing spread. They had delicious wine. And the poor Christians are showing up with meager food and with watered down wine. And the wealthy Christians are eating their lavish meal in front of the poor Christians. Another possibility that's really interesting is connected to archaeological evidence that shows that wealthy Christians who would have hosted the gatherings of Christians on the Lord's Day probably had really small dining rooms and really big outer courtyards in their houses. So the idea is that it's also possible that the wealthy Christians were inviting their VIP buddies into the actual dining room to feast on delicious food and drink really delicious wine while the poorer Christians literally had a little bit of bread and watered down wine outside. Now, whatever was happening, the church of God was being despised. It was being despised. And those that had nothing were being humiliated. And we'll get to the heart of that despising when we get to Paul's warning about not receiving the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But the key issue, get this, this is so important. The key issue is that the very act of receiving the Lord's Supper that was to be a fresh encounter with the good news of the gospel. It's to be, it's to be a proclamation and a remembering and an enjoyment of Jesus that points to Christ becoming poor to make us rich and dying in our place is now being received in a way that's a contradiction to the very essence of that good news. And Paul says, hey guys, it's not even the Lord's Supper that you eat. You've missed it so badly that you think you're receiving the Lord's Supper, but it's not the Lord's Supper at all. And so what Paul's going to do is remind them of the heart of this meal. He wants to remind them of the essence of the bread and the wine and what we remember and what we receive as we eat this as Christians. So I'm going to give you six things that he's going to mention, six things that are at the heart of this meal. And I'll go through them really quickly. The first thing that Paul wants to remind them of is that the Lord's Supper is a meal of thanksgiving. It's a meal of thanksgiving. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. At the Last Supper, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper for all Christians in history, he started that meal with an act of gratitude. He gave praise and honor to his Father for providing a way of redemption for his people. And as Christians gather to eat this meal, we're to gather around this meal with gratitude, thanking God for Jesus and for his lavish grace and making a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. Therefore, the Lord's Supper in many traditions is rightfully called the Eucharist. Eucharist comes from the Greek word for thanksgiving. 
Jesus prepared a feast of freedom for his people. And when we eat this meal, we're to eat this meal with thankful hearts. And in the midst of that gratitude and thankfulness, two things happen simultaneously. We war against entitlement and we also war against a victimhood mentality. It's impossible to be entitled when you're grateful, (laughs) when you realize that everything you have is a gift from God, when you realize that what we deserve is hell and condemnation, and not only does God give us air to breathe and water to drink and sunsets and food and friendship and music and laughter and all of those common grace gifts, but in the midst of all that we deserve from God because of our sin, he also gave us his only son. He didn't withhold his son from us but gave us Jesus, this is to be a meal that wars against entitlement where we realize that the essence of being a Christian is to be a person of gratitude before our creator in all things, a life of gratitude. It's also really difficult to have a victim mentality when you live a life of gratitude, a a begrudging, angry, bitter, cynical view that everybody's out to get me. I remember as a kid reading The Hiding Place by Corey Tinboom, such a good book. It's the story of Corey Tinboom and her sister Betsy, who were Christians who were put in a Nazi concentration camp. And there's this really powerful moment where they first got to the concentration camp. And they were just overwhelmed by the filth and the hatred and the despair. And Corey says to her sister, Betsy, she says, how are we to live in a place like this? And Betsy just immediately moves into prayer naturally. And she says to God, show us. And then immediately a light bulb goes off and Betsy remembers that they had been able to smuggle in a Bible, which is a gift. And in the Bible, they had read that day, these words from first Thessalonians chapter five, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. They proceeded until the day that Betsy died. They proceeded to wage a war of gratitude against the despair of the concentration camp, and it shifted everything. Paul is saying to Christians, hey, listen, like, do you not realize that what you deserved was eternal wrath and what you've received is the fullness of God's love in Jesus? When you eat this meal, give thanks. Give thanks. Give thanks when it feels like things suck in your life because you still have Jesus. Give thanks when you feel like you're on the top of the mountain and everything's going well because you don't deserve it. Give thanks. In all things, give thanks. This is the Eucharist. A life of thanksgiving is a life of radical, radical dependence on God that rightly recognizes he's the source of all good things. Secondly, number two, it's a meal of unity. And this is the place where they're missing the Lord's Supper most deeply. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you, a plural you, the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus' body was broken for his body, the church, to take people out of isolation, to take strangers and orphans, and to make them fellow members of the household of God, brothers and sisters. And when we come to this meal 
to remember the finished work of Jesus, we are celebrating communion. So we can rightly call this meal the Eucharist. It's a meal of thanksgiving. But we can also rightly call this meal communion because it's a reminder of the koinonia or the fellowship that we have with God through Jesus and that we have with one another. This is a meal that helps us deal with loneliness. It reminds us that we are loved by God and that we've been given each other as siblings. It's a meal that calls us out of isolation and hiding. It's a meal where we receive the forgiveness of God in Jesus and we offer forgiveness to those that have hurt us. It's a meal that's designed to kill consumerism and individualistic religion. St. Augustine pointed out that just as many individual grains get ground together and baked into the loaf, and just as many individual grapes get smashed and turn into the wine, we who were separate and isolated and cut off from God and cut off from each other, who didn't have a people, we have been made one in Jesus Christ. We've been unified in him. This is because of the grace of God and the mercy of God. And what we see is that in Jesus, both the rich and the poor, the young and the old, Jew and Gentile, are made one body in Jesus. Not separate classes, not different standings. We all received in Jesus profound unity through his broken body and his shed blood. And we don't eat this meal as a personal private devotion. We eat this meal together to remind us that God gave us to each other. He gave us to each other. Thirdly, it's a meal of remembrance. Jesus says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Um, when you see a command that's all over scripture, just know that that's a command that we're constantly going to break. We're constantly going to break it. Uh, the Bible says, don't be afraid. Old Testament, New Testament, hundreds of times. Do you know why? Because we're always afraid. <laughs> One of the commands that's most repeated in scripture is to remember, to remember what God's done, to remember his faithfulness, to remember his love, to remember his promises. And we need this command because we're all prone to forget. In fact, most, most of human existence is an ongoing identity crisis where we're trying to figure out who the heck we are. And we go to our performance to tell us who we are. We go to our accomplishments to tell us who we are. We look at our failures to tell us who we are. We ask other people to tell us who we are, or we try to use our own strength to shape and answer the questions, who am I? And in this meal, here's what happens. We remember the finished work of Jesus on the cross to give us a new identity. We remember afresh because we forget daily who we are in Jesus. This is a meal that answers the deepest question, who am I? Who am I? You failed this week, you succeeded this week. Who are you? Your marriage is great this week, your marriage is over this week. Who are you? Well, if your faith is in Jesus, this meal reminds you every single Sunday that the truest thing about you is what God says, and he says that you're his that you're loved, that you're forgiven, that you're washed, that you're justified, that you've been set free from sin, Satan, and death, that Christ's righteousness is yours. This is a meal of gospel remembering. This is a meal that pushes back against the amnesia of sin that we struggle with all week long. Who am I? This meal reminds you of who you are.
Number four, it's also a meal of proclamation. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a meal that proclaims the good news of Jesus in what is said and in what is done. As the gospel is preached on a Sunday morning, as we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus and the grace of God in Jesus, we use words to speak forth the truth of God's good news. And every single week, as one of our pastors lifts up the bread and fences the table and invites Christians to eat in faith, as they lift up the cup and fence the table and invite Christians to drink and receive... As we do that, we're proclaiming the good news of Jesus, that the heartbeat of the Christian life is not moralism. It's not just another world philosophy. It's not even another man-centered religion in which we try to get to God through ritual. We proclaim that the essence of Christianity is what God has done for his enemies through his son, Jesus, to make us his family. We proclaim it. But here's what's wild. This meal also proclaims the goodness of the gospel in what is done, in what is done and what has taken place to the finished work of Jesus. We speak words, but listen, this is also a meal in which reconciliation is put on display, in which transformation, yeah, Christians are messed up. We're often hypocritical. We blow it. We're always sinners, but we're simultaneously saints and change is happening. Growth is taking place. Repentance is happening. As people come to eat this meal, they're saying, hey, Jesus is better than money. Jesus is better than sex. Jesus is better than the world. As we eat this meal, we say to the world, our hope is in Jesus, and the thing we need more than anything else is Jesus. It's a meal of proclamation. It's also, fifthly, a meal of hopeful longing. Hopeful longing. Look at verse 26 again. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's what's wild. Uh, if you read the Bible and you pay attention, the Bible is bookended with two meals. There's a meal at the beginning of the Bible that's the most tragic meal in human history. It's when our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God and ate the forbidden fruit. They turned from God. They said, in essence, we don't want you, we want your stuff. The result of that meal was disastrous. Sin and death flooded creation. Division between man and God. Division between brothers and sisters. Division between husbands and wives. Decay entered into creation. Death reigned. Satan became the dark ruler of this world. It's a disastrous meal. It's a horrible meal. It's a meal that broke everything. At the end of the Bible, there's a triumphant meal. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's when Jesus returns for all of his people, and in the new heavens and the new earth, we lift up the cup and we celebrate that every tear has been wiped away and all things have been made new, that creation's no longer groaning, that God has accomplished what we couldn't. He's undone the curse on every single level imaginable. The redemption is individual, but it's also cosmic. That all things that have been made bent and knotted and twisted have been made straight and beautiful through the work of Jesus. And in this meal that we eat, we stand between those two meals. 
This is a meal in the middle of history that looks back on the first meal of our sinful rebellion and that looks ahead to the final meal, the banquet of the lamb, and it stands in the middle remembering that because of Jesus, all history belongs to God and we can patiently wait in hope that he will return, that he's not gonna leave us alone, that the things that are unresolved in your life today will one day be resolved. The prayers that are good prayers that you're praying to be fully known, to be fully free, to love God with every fiber of your being. Those are prayers that will ultimately on the great day be completely answered. And places in your life where you have no idea how God could possibly wipe those tears away. We eat this meal to remember that he said he will. He will. So we can wait, we can be patient, and we can hope. We don't have to become cynical or hard or despairing. We eat this meal even in a world that's still groaning and broken, knowing that Jesus will keep his word. He'll come back and finish what he started. It's a meal of hopeful longing that gives us patience. And then lastly, number six, it's a meal of presence. It's a meal of presence. This is implied in chapter 11, but it's explicit in chapter 10. Remember what Paul said in chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Here's what he's saying. When we eat this meal in faith, what happens is we're actually receiving afresh and enjoying afresh all the benefits of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in different traditions, Christians have got this wrong throughout history. In Catholic traditions, the presence of Jesus is here as the bread and the wine literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus. In Lutheran traditions, they talk about consubstantiation, which is really confusing. I don't even think Lutheran theologians know what it means. The idea is that the body and blood of Jesus is sort of in and under the elements, I think a, a, a helpful reading and a helpful clarification is that the real presence of Jesus is in this meal because God the Holy Spirit takes Christians who trust in Jesus and he lifts us up spiritually into the presence of Jesus. And God the Holy Spirit takes the presence of Jesus and brings him down to us as we eat this meal in faith. And what happens as we eat this meal is we actually get to feast on the presence of Jesus. We get to be with Jesus. Your body was made to need food, to, to eat bread and to be nourished. And the Bible says that wine gladdens the heart. This is a meal where we, where we take the bread and we take the wine and we remember that the truest thing about you is that you were made for communion with God to feast on Jesus, to enjoy Jesus, to know Jesus. And as we eat this meal in the presence of Jesus, we're saying, hey, true bread is Christ and true drink is Christ. We need him more than we need anything else. And by faith, we enjoy his presence. We get to be with him. We get to feast on him. Now, that's what's actually happening in the meal. A lot of beautiful things are happening. And you've probably noticed if you've been a part of our church for any length of time that there's hundreds of different ways for us to talk about this meal at the end of a sermon. As long as a sermon was about Jesus, it's really easy to go to this meal and receive it together. Amen? So here's what I want to do. I want us to now look 
at Paul's warning so that we can get this right. Because he gives a really sober warning, but it's a warning that's often misapplied and missed in the church. So look at verse 27. These are really weighty words. Here's what Paul says. In light of the beauty of what this meal really means, Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, that's really important, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But with but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined that we may not be condemned along with the world. Okay, there, there's two ways that we can really miss this warning. And this is so important. Please hear me. There's two ways to miss this warning. The first way is to misapply this warning and to think that what Paul is looking for is sinless perfection if you're going to eat this meal. The idea being, hey man, it, it would be disastrous for me in unworthiness to eat this meal. But I want you to pay really close attention to the text and to all of Paul's theology. Paul doesn't ban unworthy people from this meal. He warns us against receiving this meal in an unworthy manner. And too often what happens in churches is that Christians whose consciences are tender, who are depressed and beaten down because of their sin, who need fresh grace, who need fresh forgiveness, who need new hope, who feel the distance between them and God because they keep wandering away, they come to this meal and they think, oh, I can't eat this because I'm unworthy. I want to say, listen, there's only one person in the history of the world that's ever been worthy. His name is Jesus. This is a meal for unworthy sinners. This is a meal for people that are broken and needy and sinful and prone to wander. This is a meal for people that need fresh grace. It's a meal for people who are willing to repent and look to Jesus. It's a meal for people that look away from the illusion of self-righteousness and who only look at the righteousness of Jesus as our source. So listen, do you need grace today? Do you need forgiveness today? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come and receive what you need today from him. He loves you. He doesn't, he doesn't break bent reeds. He doesn't extinguish dimly, warning, dimly burning wicks. He's gentle, he's kind, he's patient, he's lowly, he's humble. Do you have needs today? Come to Jesus. So this is not a warning against unworthy people eating the meal. It's a warning against unworthily receiving in the manner that we come. And the key to understanding that is found in verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Paul is concerned about eating and drinking without discerning the body. What, what does that mean? This is what some in Corinth are doing, and the result is that God is chastening the church with sickness and sometimes even death to preserve them from final judgment. So what does that mean? Well, the body that they're failing to discern doesn't have anything to do with the lack of reverence for the bread or the wine. So failing to discern the body is not 
misunderstanding just how important this bread is or how important this wine is, failing to discern the body is connected to what Paul already said to them in verse 22. He said, do you despise, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those that have nothing? The body that the Corinthians are failing to discern is not the bread or the wine. The body that they're failing to discern is the body of Christ, fellow Christians. They are not discerning the body when a wealthy person looks at a poor person and sees them as less important than themselves. When they're divided, when they bite each other and devour each other, when they judge each other, when they create narratives in their heads against each other, they're failing to discern the body. Failing to discern the body is a failure to obey the command of God to guard the unity and bond of love in the church. Most of us in this room today are probably not tempted with the same kind of classism that was common in the ancient world. I'm not saying it doesn't exist in the room. I'm just saying that may not be the number one application of this text for us. But listen, we all have to discern the body as we come to this meal. And our fellow Christians are a part of Jesus's body. And when we slander, when we gossip, when we devour, when we cut off, when we reject, when we accuse, it's actually an affront to Jesus. Now, listen, this is really important. Most Christians, most Christians would be rightly shocked if somebody came into this room and threw a big bag of filthy garbage on the bread and wine. We'd be offended by that. Or if somebody came in on a Sunday morning and defaced a cross, we would be offended by that. Or if somebody spray painted something blasphemous on the walls of a church, we would be offended by that. Listen, what Paul is getting at is that when we, when we abuse one another, when we reject one another, when we fail to love one another, when we don't forgive one another, we're actually defacing something far more sacred than a church building or a statue. We're defacing the body of Jesus. It would be almost impossible to wrap our minds around spitting on Jesus or slapping the face of Jesus, or cutting off Jesus, or rejecting Jesus, or if Jesus was hungry or thirsty, refusing to feed or to give a drink to Jesus. Like, I think if you came across Jesus and he was thirsty, you would give him a drink. But when we withhold what other brothers and sisters need, when we don't offer each other kindness and charity and love, and listen, the benefit of the doubt... We're actually defacing Jesus because those people are the body of Jesus. John Calvin's work in the Institutes on the Lord's Supper is phenomenal. Let me read you this brief paragraph. We shall benefit very much from the sacrament if this thought is impressed and engraved upon our minds, that none of the brethren can be injured, despised, rejected, abused, or in any way offended by us without at the same time injuring, despising, and abusing Christ by the wrongs we do. That we cannot disagree with our brethren without at the same time disagreeing with Christ. That we cannot love Christ without loving him in the brethren. That we ought to take the same care of our brethren's bodies as we take of our own. For they are members of our body. 
and that as no part of our body is touched by any feeling of pain, which is not spread among the rest, so we ought not to allow a brother to be affected by any evil without being touched with compassion for him. Accordingly, Augustine, with good reason, frequently calls this sacrament the bond of love. Failing to discern the body as we come to this meal every week is failing to be active and diligent in maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace among us. It's letting divisions and strife and backbiting and slander and accusation. And listen, like the thing we do where we just create meaning out of interactions without actually talking to a person, that's a way that we fail to discern the body. So Paul says, examine yourselves. This is, this is a great time every single week to think about, hey, are my accounts are my accounts in order with my family? Are my accounts in order with my brothers and sisters? Have I gone to people? Is there somebody that has ought with me that I haven't reached out to? Is there somebody that I have ought with that I need to go to? This is a meal of love and of unity. And Paul's final words as he closes this section are really interesting because especially those in our church that are more left-leaning would hear about the divisions between the rich and the poor. And we would think that Paul's final word would be, hey, you guys need to redistribute all the wealth in completely even ways. That's not what Paul says. The Bible never advocates for Christian communism. What it advocates for is stewardship, whether you're rich or poor, for the glory of God and the benefit of others. It's possible to be poor and to walk in obedience to Jesus. It's possible to be rich and walk in obedience to Jesus. Having money doesn't mean that you're disqualified from the kingdom of God. Not having money doesn't mean that you're disqualified from the kingdom of God. If you make a lot of money, you shouldn't feel guilty for making a lot of money. You should ask, how should I steward my money for the glory of God? And if you don't make a lot of money, if it's difficult to make ends meet, you shouldn't assume that that means that God doesn't love you or he's withholding his care from you because Jesus, our master, was poor. So Paul's final words are really interesting. Look what he says in 33 and 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Like, what a crazy thing to say. Instead of saying redistribute the wealth, make sure that it's all even Stephen, here's what he says. Practice gospel courtesy to one another as brothers and sisters. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And the other things I will give directions when I come. He wants them to relate to one another in and through Jesus. And here's the wild thing as we close. <clears throat> if you understand the gospel, you understand that there's one mediator between man and God, Jesus Christ that we come to the Father through the finished work of Jesus. We can approach the Father in prayer and in confidence that he hears us because we approach the blood of Jesus. But here's what's really interesting, and here's what we miss so often. Jesus is also the mediator between me and Charlie. Jesus is the mediator between me and my wife. Jesus stands between you and your fellow brothers and sisters, and we're to relate to one another in and through the finished work of Jesus. We're to see each other in and through the finished work of Jesus, which means that no building and no sunset and no ocean and no mountain that takes your breath away is ever as sacred, important, or as holy as a single brother or sister that you get to encounter. No matter how wretched their life may look in this moment, 
The most sacred space you'll ever stand on is space where you're standing in front of another human being, especially a brother or sister. So let's pray. Father, as we come to this meal, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. We thank you for your love and your patience and your kindness. We pray that you would come now and feed us and clothe us and help us to receive everything you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.